Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, everyone. Shep Hyken here on Amazing Business Radio on the CBS and Play It Network. I'm very excited today because we have Danny Meyer, who is an amazing business person, an amazing restaurateur, probably one of the most successful restaurateurs in the world. Uh, Coincidentally, he grew up in St. Louis. I'll tell you some more coincidences about our past as we get into the show. But Danny, welcome here to the show, Amazing Business Radio. It's great to have you. Thank you, Shep. So we're going to talk about hospitality and service. So this is what's interesting to me. So 1985, it was probably not that far. You just graduated college a year or two before that. And and let's go back to the very beginning. This is what's cool. You and I actually officially met, what, seven years ago or so, maybe? Six years ago? Yeah. Yeah. We met when when we were both happened to be on spring break with their kids and happened to be staying at the same hotel. But we actually met many, many years before that because we went to nursery school together. (laughs) (laughs) And you and I talked about... Lucky Lane. I know, Lucky Lucky Lane. Lane, Lucky Lane. It was a two-year program. You were a year ahead of me, but they, you know, we were all in the same room, basically. (laughs) And so, and uh, we uh, coincidentally went to the same high school, but you were a little bit ahead of me, and then you switched over to the other school, the competitor. You went from Country Day to Burroughs, but then graduated. Where'd you go to college? I went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Went to Trinity, graduated, and did you know you were going to get into the restaurant business? I had absolutely no idea I was going to get into the restaurant business. I was always fascinated by restaurants and food and wine. Um, and in fact, while I was at Trinity, I, I did a semester at the Rome campus um, studying international politics, and I could be found far more frequently in trattorias than, than in the classroom, I'm afraid to say, but... I still never thought back then that that might lead to a career in the in the in the restaurant industry because until I'd say you know maybe 15 years ago or so it just was still not considered to be a valid career path for someone with a liberal arts degree and now I'm just so happy to say that I don't think you you, you see too many kids who are embarrassed to tell their parents um, as I was oh my gosh I'm gonna going to the into the restaurant business well i wouldn't have been embarrassed about that and plus the restaurant that you opened union square is recognized or was recognized as one of the top restaurants in new york city which is pretty cool and and i would assume you love the east which is why you stayed up there on the east coast and and went to new york and that is a heck of a place to start a business i would imagine especially the restaurant business because you can walk basically down any street in new york city look around, and if a restaurant's been there for at least five years, it's probably a decent restaurant that's going to be around for another 15 or 20. I think that's a, that's a good point. And then, of course, New York is is also a city of inches where um, I think real estate truly drives the city. And so one of the things that I've learned in some cases the hard way, in some cases a great way, is that when you open a restaurant and you get a 15 or 20 year lease on the restaurant, you're making a bet on real estate as much as you're making a bet on anything else. And the goal for me has always been to try to get to a slightly uh, off the beat 
off the beaten path neighborhood slightly earlier than others do, lock in a rent that's slightly below what you hope the market will become, and then your underlying business foundation is stronger for the future. Now, we got into some trouble with that because we did it so well in retrospect by picking Union Square Cafe's site back in 1985 that uh, after our second re-upping of the lease, Union Square Cafe is going to be 30 years old this October, the uh, the new lease comes due um, December 31st of this year, and our landlord basically wanted to triple our, our rent because that's what had happened to the market in that period of time. You can't really blame him, but it put us at a disadvantage with a restaurant named after its neighborhood, and it took us a good year and a half to to do what we just succeeded at finally last week, which was to find a new location for Union Square Cafe that would be in Union Square. Oh, wow. So that's, that's amazing. So back, I hope that all made sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense, and I think this is important. And one of the things about our show, Amazing Business Radio, is that you know, we're talking about the restaurant business, but it's business. Business is business, and you are running up against, it's not whether or not you should you know, cook this recipe or that recipe. It's whether or not you should sign this lease, invest in this property, recognize the branding of your restaurant has actually, in a sense, it may have locked you into uh, a neighborhood that you, you, for lack of a better term, can't get out of. Um, I mean, it wouldn't make sense to, to have the Union Square Cafe over in Brooklyn. Or would it? <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been our top choice. I love Brooklyn. Um, and I, I, Chef, i got to tell you, we got to the point where seeing one place after the next that we just could not make happen in the Union Square neighborhood, we actually started thinking, well, whoever wrote the rule at Union Square Cafe has to be in Union Square. But I kept insisting that, uh, you know, a restaurant is truly... A, especially a 30-year-old restaurant, it's it's a collection of relationships. And the relationships we have with farmers in the green market from whom we buy products every day or reg- regulars who come almost every day for lunch or neighbors who, who drop in, you know, this neighbor is there every Tuesday night, that neighbor's there every Saturday for lunch. Um, we just kind of felt that if we took Union Square Cafe out of Union Square, it just would be a whole different restaurant. We just chose not to do that. Right. I would agree. And I love the fact that you're calling your guests or your customers neighbors because uh, that's what they are, and it's a more endearing term. So let's go back to 1985. You decide you're going to get into this business, and you decide to open a, a, a business that's probably one of the most competitive businesses that may have one of the biggest churn rates as far as failure, but you managed to be successful. So my big question is, what made Union Square stand out over the other restaurants? What what differentiated you? Well, I don't I, I don't think I'm saying this only because we're both from the same city, but I, I do believe that, you know, back in that era in New York City, which was the mid-1980s, coming from St. Louis turns out to have been a huge, huge advantage because while New York had sensational food, especially back then if you like going to places that were fancy, that started with lo or la or eel, because they all did. Right. <laughs> um, 
most of those places were not incredibly friendly to you. You know, we had just come out of the Studio 54 nightclub era where, you know, the prevailing the prevailing trend was to, to decide who was good enough to get in and who wasn't. And so... Right, you have to be cool enough, right? If you're not yeah, cool enough, you can't come in, right? Yeah, so if you're not nice to the maitre d', you're not going to get a nice table. If you're not nice to the owner, you're never going to get any table. And that's just not how I was brought up in St. Louis. You know, we didn't necessarily have the world's greatest food when I was growing up, although there was a lot of local favorites that I still love and think about today, um, some of which have actually woven into our businesses. But leaving food aside for a minute, what you could always depend on in St. Louis was that they'd be nice to you. And they remembered what your favorite table was and what your parents' favorite drink was and, you know, the fact that you had been there last year for your birthday. And so it was kind of amazing to me, but, but that thing called hospitality, which, which is not service, it, I'm not talking about a lot of the restaurants in New York had absolutely superior service. They could open a bottle of wine beautifully. They could decant it. They could sauce your pasta next to the table. You know, they did all the service stuff beautifully, but the hospitality, which is how were they making you feel during that service? How were they making you feel while you were getting that really good food? I thought was inferior to what I'd grown up with in St. Louis. So I basically took a lot of the lessons on how to treat people, let people know you were happy to see them, that I'd grown up with in St. Louis and paired them with what I had learned about food and gastronomy and what to put on the plate and what to put in the glass. And that became Union Square Cafe. Wow, that's great. And I love that you've differentiated what you call service from hospitality. And there's a technical side of service, for example, uh, and I've always approached it from the other way around. Hire somebody with a hospitality mentality. Find somebody that worked at a hotel or a restaurant and then train them to the technical side of service. And the technical side of service, as you refer to it, is how do you properly open the bottle of wine? Do you serve on which side of the person? Do you drop off the plate on the left and pick up on the right or vice versa? I don't know. <laughs> but, but that's part of the technical side. And you could be flawless at execution, but you can get a big F when it comes to uh, the actual way you treat the people with that hospitality. And, and that's I think it. you and I are cut from the same cloth, sir. Right. Well, we know that already. We know that already. But the, uh, you know, St. Louis hospitality, I think we've got that. You've got that Southern hospitality. And, and I always used to joke, New York, the difference between New Yorkers is uh, they appear to be much tougher than they actually are. Because as soon as you get to know these people, they open their arms up. I mean, they, they, they love you even more than anyone else. So, uh, well, New York has also become a much, much nicer place. Um, in all these years, I, I think it's, I think that the, uh, and by the way, you can hear the sirens in the background. I just want to prove that I'm actually in New York right now. Right. Well, <laughs> New, New, New York has really become a much more hospitable place. I think that, that we are far from alone in offering restaurants where you can eat and drink really well and be well cared for. I think that it's a very, very, um, it's a fantastic restaurant market. I'm really proud to be part of it. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about what's happened in 30 years, because I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in the way your business is operated and business in general. So let's take a real short break. Don't go away. This is Amazing Business Radio. We're talking to Danny Meyer. We'll be right back. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here. We're back on Amazing Business Radio. We're talking with Danny Meyer about not just the restaurant business, but business in general, talking about the difference between hospitality, which is the way people are treated, versus just the technical side of service. Really great delineation there. We'll talk more about that when we get into his book, which was a New York Times best-selling book called Setting the Table. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But 30 years ago, uh, Danny started this restaurant, and he gave us a little background, and I'm sure a lot has changed in 30 years. Uh, you even mentioned, Danny, that the people have changed. New York is nicer than it used to be. What are the biggest changes you've seen in the last 30 years? Oh, my gosh, there's so many changes. Um, I, I think the the one that's coming to my mind right now is that that – 30 years ago, people really used restaurants for special occasions. They used good restaurants. They, they only went out for good food when it was a special occasion, and the really good food was really expensive and tended to be really fancy. And I think that the biggest change is that people eat good food wherever they are. Um, they and eat that's good for you. A week. <laughs> That's right, and they don't need to be fancy or spend a lot of money to have it. And so what that's meant is that the the quality of food wherever you go, whether it's a coffee shop or a baseball stadium or an art museum or a jazz club um, or a hotel or a, a, a you know a neighborhood joint, you're going to get good food wherever you go right now. And that doesn't mean that there's not a role for special occasion restaurants. It just means that that eating well and eating food that's been well-sourced, often seasonal, local, um, doesn't mean that you need to wait for a special occasion to do that. And, and I love that. I really love that. So the amount of talent that's been attracted to working in our industry and the, the amount of people's disposable income that is used on finding the best cup of coffee, finding the best loaf of bread, finding the best um, prosciutto. It's just its kind of remarkable to me how people are passionate about food these days. And and then in our city, um, as in so many cities around the country, there are now so many good cooks that um, it's actually created a, a labor shortage in Manhattan for really, really good uh, culinary professionals. There's, there's still plenty to go around, but but not enough relative to how many restaurants there are, because it used to be that if you wanted your career to be taken seriously, you needed to have a Manhattan restaurant on your resume or maybe a San Francisco restaurant on your resume. Today, the other big change is that every single city in the country has really good food, and you don't need to stop in New York if you don't want to after culinary school or wherever. You can you can know that there's an audience for good food wherever you want to go. So I have a theory that I think goes with that, and that is that restaurants and any business in general, really, but restaurants, as we're talking about that now, are forced to up their game. And the reason I think that is is because customers or guests or whatever you want to call them uh, expect 
to get what they pay for. And if they're going to spend any amount of money above average at best, say, or at a low price, they would expect the best. And and that is why, and I mentioned this earlier, that if a restaurant's been in business for five years, it means they're meeting and exceeding the expectations of their guests. And if and that's a very difficult business to stay in business for five years. So once it happens, I don't know what the what what the turning point is or the tipping point for a restaurant, but my feeling is, you, if Starbucks didn't have such good coffee and great ambience and the and the experience they created, they couldn't charge that much and they couldn't have lines almost nonstop from the time they open. They have to be playing at a certain level. And guess what Starbucks did, just as your restaurant may have done. You forced others to compete at a level to stay in business. And that is why there's a lot of good places to eat and a lot of good places to choose from. And people who have the money are willing to spend it, but you got to make sure you play the game. And that is to give them the quality and the service that they expect, if not even more than they expect. That's so true. I mean, <laughs> again, I, I, I feel somewhat bad for your listeners because you and I could spend this entire time just agreeing with one another here. But it, it's absolutely true. We try to tell our staff members that, look, at the end of the day, we can call our patrons guests. But in fact, they are customers because they are paying us money in exchange for food and drink. That's a fact. However, what I'd like to also do is to imbue our team members with a sense that nobody in today's day and age uh, as a business can afford to strictly be in the transaction business. And in our case, the transaction is you give me money and I give you food. We have to be in the hospitality business. And so what I try to share is that that uh, if it's going to cost you, you know, $50 to eat in one of our restaurants, you're going to get a bill at the end that's going to be itemized as to all the things you ordered for $50. And what I try to do is to, to express that the one thing that that should really be on that bill is $50 for hospitality. And the food should basically be considered to be free because what people truly, truly want is to pay for the experience of knowing that we are happy to see them, that the exchange of pleasure is mutual, and that we can't wait to see them again. And I, I think that the good food, all those itemized items that you got for your 50 bucks, people expect that to be well-prepared. You don't get extra credit because you did what people expected. Right. As a matter I, of fact, you lose, you lose all credit if you don't do that. Right, However, because all it is at that point is you've met the expectation, and... And it's average, except I'll, I'll argue this point. So maybe we're not going to agree on everything. I believe there are certain restaurants, and perhaps uh, Union Square Cafe is one of them or one of your higher-end restaurants, that it's so good that all you have to do is meet the expectation to basically exceed it because it's better than everywhere else. Fair enough. <laughs> Okay, now you're going to agree with me. You know, and, and I use uh, St. Louis has a famous Italian restaurant here, Tony's. And I use Tony's as the example. Tony's is is recognized in St. Louis as the top restaurant. And I always say, you know, that if, if when they're on their game, you expect what they give you. 
there, there's really no way to exceed it. It's always supposed to be delicious. You're supposed to have that amazing service. What can you do to make that better? Hey, just give me it, and I'm happy to pay for it. It's that simple. Yep. So, yeah, and we also have a theory we call the air conditioner theory that connects to this. And the air conditioner theory says that service has become a lot like air conditioning, which is that, you know, when I, I when I did grow up in St. Louis, I, I've been around long enough to remember that there was a poster you would see in some windows of some stores of a of a polar bear. It was blue and white, and the polar bear was next to an igloo, and it would say, "Burr, come inside. It's cold." And that would be those stores that actually had air conditioning, because not every store back then had air conditioning, and so they were trying to distinguish themselves by saying, "Look, we realize." We're selling a commodity. We're just like all the other hardware stores, but at least when you shop in our hardware store, you're not going to be perspiring while you're shopping. And so everybody got air conditioning finally. And nowadays, air conditioning, which is a type of service, um, is expected. And and the only remarkable thing about air conditioning is when it doesn't work. No one ever says to their to their partner, or wife, or spouse, whatever, "Gee, honey." We've got to go back to Union Square Cafe because they've got the most delicious air conditioning. Um, what you would say, though, is I'm never going back to that place because I was perspiring through my entire meal because the air conditioner was broken. Right, right. So It's a so given. Air conditioning is a lot like service in that it's the whole part of performance that comes with expectations. And the the good news and bad news is that the more... Uh, innovations you have for service, uh, the better, but people come to expect them. And so you create your own sense of service and performance inflation, and and you only make your job tougher because when you don't do that stuff, you get in trouble. But what they truly come back for once, once once your innovation has been copied by everybody else, they're truly coming back for all those emotional interactions that add up to hospitality. So this is good information for any business, not just the restaurant and hospitality business. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, New York Times bestseller, one of the top books, not just on hospitality, but I believe one of the best customer service books that has ever been written. We'll be right back. This is Amazing Business Radio. My name's Shep Hyken. Don't go away. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, everyone. Shep Hyken back on Amazing Business Radio on CBS and Play It. And we're with Danny Meyer. And I said we would be talking about his book, Setting the Table, which came out, uh, oh, I'm going to say, what, about 10 years ago, Danny? Uh, came out nine years ago. Nine years ago. Okay. Next year it'll be 10 years and I'll be right. So nine right. years ago. And I love this book. And and I just think the, the whole concept of any business, can, and, you know, I've talked to so many businesses. Just, just yesterday I came back from doing a presentation with Kumon Learning Centers. Now these are centers where kids go and they, they practice their math and their reading and their English skills. And they specifically said they wanted me to bring in the concept of hospitality into 
Kumon education and, and you know the, these programs for kids. And I thought, okay, I love that they're getting into this. Talk to us about setting the table. What The general idea is setting the table is appropriate for any business. I think it is because, as you said earlier in the broadcast, Shep, business is business. And I think that I, I define business, um, which I learned this from my, my grandfather, who li- happily lived till he was 94 years old. So he got to see several of our restaurants. Um, and he tried to talk me out of going into the restaurant business early on because he said, that's, that's no business for a grandson of mine. Um, he happily recanted that at the end and said, I'm glad he did that. But one day early on when I was complaining about something that came up, you know, how, how am I going to figure this out? He said, here's the best piece of advice I can ever give you. The definition of business is problems. And he said, just as the definition of surfing is waves, or just as the definition of baseball is hitting pitches. And he said, you know, if you want to spend your finite amount of energy complaining about the very essence of what it is, you probably won't be very successful. But if you actually love surfing waves, you'll, you could be a champion surfer. If you actually love hitting tough pitches, you could probably be a champion uh, batter. So what was great about that was just defining that he said the way I got comfortable with you going into the restaurant business, which I always thought was such a miserable business, is that business is business, and business is about solving problems. And so if you're lucky enough to be a good problem solver, and you're really lucky enough to surround yourself not only with people who you like solving problems with, but people who have problem-solving skills that are complementary to yours, then you really have a really good shot at making it. And so I happen to love the topic uh, around which we solve problems. I love food and drink, and I love discovering things that I can share with other people. Um, I love seeing people happily, you know, being with other people while they're eating our food. That makes me really happy. But at the end of the day, you know, there, there's probably a lot of businesses that that I'd have fun at um, because it, because what we're doing is basically just spending the whole day solving problems. Just like tennis players are solving problems. They're going out to play a game. You play doubles with people who you want to play doubles with. I, I really view this as a game. The good news is I don't have to take a shower at the end of every day. Well, I think you should. It's just that's typically <laughs> what we do. But <laughs> no, I get okay. it. I get it. So setting the table. Let's say I am in the manufacturing business. Why should I buy the book? Well, you're throwing me a softball right now. I, I think that setting the table is a way to I'm mean, I'm gonna actually be a little humble right now, but it's true. I don't I don't think if you read setting the table you're going to learn one thing that you don't already know. So it's not a history book that teaches you facts. It's not a science book that just that helps you discover things. It's really a book of stories, and it's it's a book that allows you to 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 say, "Oh my God, I've been feeling that for my whole life, and now I know how to say it." So it provides language in a certain way to actually say two things. Number one, I'm not alone in feeling that way, both as a business person and as a customer. And number two, now that I have language and stories that I can that I can use to describe that thing I've been feeling, 
I can be far more intentional about achieving those things and teaching those things. Because when you just feel something, you can't teach it. Right. But so when you have a way to say it, yep. you can really be quite powerful about it. So if I'm a manager in this manufacturing plant and I read this book, you're gonna you're gonna give me uh, you're gonna you're gonna basically I'm gonna be in sync with those ideas. You're gonna say it or, or you've written it in such a way that I can go back and now articulate it. And I do I do agree that when it comes to delivering service or delivering a hospitality experience, it's almost common sense that unfortunately isn't always common. And I used to say it's not always so common. I just I think it's becoming more and more common that companies are finally realizing they need to get on the ball if they gonna if they're gonna compete at all in this world. They need to be competitive at a number of levels, but especially you have to give a great service experience. And by the way, I don't expect that if I walk into Walmart, I'm going to get the same experience as if I walk into a, a high-end store or even a Nordstrom, I mean, uh, uh, to, to buy something. Nordstrom, I'm going to pay a little bit more. I'm going to get a, a little better experience. But at the same time, I walk into Walmart, people aren't going to be mean to me. No, they'll be helpful when I engage them. They'll smile at me. So I'll still get some of that hospitality and some of that guest service, but it's just not at the same level. And by the way, my expectation's not going to be the same either. However, And you raise a really good point right there because mm-hmm. expectations are also a huge part of the game. And one of the things I've learned as a business person is every now and then I'll, I'll get a complaint letter, which I appreciate because it means people – obviously know that we care about trying to be the best and the very thing that someone's complaining about is uh, you know I, I will have been to a restaurant that's it's leagues worse than the, than the little thing that they're complaining about at ours but what it means is that they they wouldn't complain about that same thing at the worst restaurant because their expectation level was so much lower that the performance didn't have to be that high but it's a compliment if people expect the best of you, and 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 that's the fun of, you know, if Pete Sampras double faults three times, if anyone's old enough to remember Pete Sampras or Roger Federer, you know, we think that's that must be the end of the world because we expect them to just go out there and hit aces all all day. If I double faulted three times, I'd say that's great because last time he only double faulted five times. <laughs> So expectation plays a big part of it. But I think that even the smallest business, even the one that doesn't feel that they compete in a big world, if they take on the attitude of we're going to do our best every day, give our customers what they want, they'll be successful in their niche. They'll grow. Um, I think it's a big differentiator. And I think if we go back to one of the earlier questions that I asked, which is what differentiates you from your competitors, uh, especially in a tough business like the restaurant business, one of the things you pointed out right away was, hey, it's the way we treated the guest. It's the way we, you know, they engage with us. Uh, part of that St. Louis uh, mentality and the way we treated people back then was different than the way they were being treated at the restaurants in New York. So you use that as an advantage. So we're starting to run out of time, and I don't want to get away without talking about perhaps one of the hottest concepts in the restaurant business and hopefully. Everybody that's listening has had an opportunity to experience the Shake Shack. Well, I hope more people will get a chance to, to experience Shake Shack. We're having so much fun with it, Shep. We, we opened our first one 11 years ago um, as 
actually more than 11 years ago, in, in 2001, just uh, trying to help restore a park in New York City, Madison Square Park, which was kind of in shambles. And we were raising money for the park. And in addition to making the park beautiful, we wanted people to use it. So we thought it would be a good idea to have fantastic public art in the park. And one of the artists that we brought in had this idea to do a hot dog cart, a working hot dog cart to go along with this piece of art. They needed someone to operate it. And so we volunteered to do that. And lo and behold, the lines were so long for these hot dogs we were serving in what was really a piece of art that uh, when his art left the next summer, 2002, they asked for the hot, the community asked for the hot dog cart to come back. And that happened for a third year in 2003. And then finally in 2004, we thought it would be a nice idea to turn this into a, a more permanent kiosk. And so we raised the money philanthropically to to build this kiosk, contributed the kiosk to the park so the park would become our landlord and collect the rent. And we called it Shake Shack. You know, the park would would own the building, we would own the business. And five years afterwards, uh, the, the lines were so long and the place was so popular, we decided to open a second one. And we did it on the Upper West Side of New York and now fast forward 11 years later, we have 71 of them around the, around the world, and we're just having the best time bringing people together um, in great places. Um, and uh, a lot of the inspiration for the food came from food I loved growing up back in St. Louis, so it kind of comes full circle. Right, and I, and I have a feeling I know, uh, and I've eaten at Shake Shack, and let me guess, the restaurant uh, here in St. Louis... Was it Steak and Shake? Steak and Shake. Carl's? Name, uh, Carl's Steak and Shake, Fitz's, Ted Fitz's. Drew, oh, yeah. Brown Candy Kitchen. You, know. you combined all your favorite things and you made your little fantasy land come true. <laughs> Absolutely right. I love it. And something you mentioned, and, and of 71 locations, and by the way, I noticed uh, before we started, I jumped on the website and you have locations in the middle east you have them in russia they're in turkey they're really there it's a worldwide organization at this point it's it's so much fun and it's it's really also fun chef to see how um you can take two things one being a burger which is a very american iconic kind of food and the second thing being hospitality which i believe is a it's a human need to give and receive hospitality. And take those two things together and watch how different cultures experience them. And, and you know, we, we think that we're so different from everybody else in the world, and we're really not. I think that, that uh, people enjoy being cared for, and I think people enjoy good food. And, and it's working, and we're having the best time. And they we're do. In, uh, so let's let's go back 11 years ago when this was a, a community service type of thing. And I, I know that you're a very philanthropic guy and have done a lot with, with, you know, just giving back to the community. Let's wrap up with some of the real positive things you've done. Is that all right? I'm going to ask you to brag about yourself for a you, moment. You can ask me any question you want to. Sure. Yeah, so so tell us about that because I think that's an important part. I mean, you immediately realize giving back is a big thing. Well, I think you realize in in any shape in any kind of business that 
you have the exact same five stakeholders, no matter what business you're in. You have people who work for you, you have customers, you have a community in which you do business, you have suppliers, and you have investors. And in a great business, all of those stakeholders are feeling great about your business, and they're all rooting for your success. And, you know, one of the things I think we've learned is that if any one of those stakeholders is not rooting for your success, it's likely because they don't feel like you've been rooting for their success. And so, you know, even if there's a whole lot of reasons to invest in your community. One is because it's a good ticket to go to heaven, and who, who of us wouldn't want to have a glass of wine together in heaven? But B, I think it's it's the most selfish thing you can do in terms of, of, of you know, you take care of your front lawn and, and your neighbors are going to start taking care of their front lawn. And then your neighborhood is going to increase in value. And then your house is going to increase in value. So it's a good thing to do. And then finally, and maybe the most important of all, is that, that the right kind of employees, especially these days, are the kind of employees that work from their heart. And they don't just do their job because it's their job. They do it because they love being part of a company that cares for more than itself and it does take care of other people. And so when you when you hire employees and you tell them that a part of their job is to care for their community and to volunteer for their community and that you're going to support them and you're going to even provide opportunities to do that, I think you end up having a competitive advantage as a business because you get employees who not only come with a skill set, but they also come loaded with a heart. Wow. Well said. Well said. And, and I, w- I think if every business would take this information to heart, uh, they'd be even more successful. Five stakeholders. You've got your employees, your customers, the community, your suppliers, and of course your investors. All five have to be happy. Any one of them out of sync, you're out of alignment, and that's a recipe for failure. Uh, pardon the pun, being in the restaurant business. I, I had to throw That's that in true. the recipe. <laughs> well, Danny, this is why we call this Amazing Business Radio. This has been an amazing discussion, and I hope uh, everybody listening, we, we, we looked at a couple of different things, actually several different uh, ideas here, and you've probably picked up something from, oh, several of these ideas that you can go back and use in your own business. So, Danny, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, and I hope when we get back together in St. Louis, when you're here, you know, you, you'll have a chance. Uh, give me a call. Let me know you're coming in. It would be great to see you again. Maybe we'll go back and we'll visit uh, Lucky Lane. <laughs> thank you so much, Chef. This has been great. It's my pleasure. Hey, thank you. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. As mentioned, this is Amazing Business Radio on CBS. My name's Chef Hike, and remember, always be amazing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.